Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode of the podcast, Jacob and assistant editor Michelle Rendells have a story for us on churches in the state and the governor's new directive, which allows them to reopen. After that, Michelle and associate editor Luz Gray talk with Tanil Pereira, the director of the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center, about the three-year anniversary of the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival shooting. At the end of the show, we'll hear from our education reporter Jackie Valley on distance learning in an excerpt from our Facebook Live show, which you can catch weekly on the Nevada Independent Facebook page. But before we get to the rest of our show, Joey sat down with our healthcare reporter Megan Messerly to break down the newest numbers and latest developments of the coronavirus pandemic. All right, and so I'm here with Megan Messerly. Hello, Megan. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. And Jacob is once again out and about in the world. He is here for the podcast this week, but right now he's covering Kamala Harris in Vegas. So I am here chatting with you about the coronavirus. Yay, coronavirus. Yes, it's been many, many weeks now of this. We're, what, six, six seven months in now? So it's been going on wanna, a long time. Yep. Do you want to tell me what the numbers are uh, looking like here in Nevada regarding the coronavirus right now? Yeah, so we're at about 80,500 cases across the state. As of right now, when we're recording, it's 80,509 cases exactly. We're a little bit north of 1,600 deaths. We're at 1,603 deaths today um, and about 73,000, a little north of 73,000 recoveries. So, you know, this week we've been keeping an eye on the trends. We talk about this every week in the podcast. You know, we were seeing decreases week over week in the number of new cases reported each day. In August and early September, those numbers started to go up again. So we've been keeping an eye on that to see where the trends are going. The last couple of days, we saw a slight little plateau. So it's hard to tell, are we going to start going back down again? Or is this just a little tick? You know, it's kind of hard to tell. And we, we only have a couple of days of data. We really need a week or a couple of weeks to be able to see where the data is trending. But the point is, we are up in the number of new cases reported each day from where we were in about mid-September at, at the low point. So we're just waiting to see what that looks like. Hospitalizations have still been plateauing, uh, which again kind of makes sense because those tend to lag case growth. So with new cases going up, we wouldn't really expect to start to see hospitalizations going up if they were going to go up anyways. Deaths at the same time have continued to trend down. We've seen fewer and fewer new COVID deaths reported each day. On the other hand, we've talked about this before too, but the trends in death data tend to lag the trends in case data by about five weeks. So again, if we are starting to see an increase or we saw a short, you know, brief increase in cases, we, we wouldn't really see that reflected in the data quite yet with both hospitalizations and death. And the governor this week announced, you know, going from these 50-person restrictions to 250-person restrictions with, with some caveats. Can you kind of explain to me, you know, how, how he's changed, how the state's approaching that. Yeah, so in general, the, the way to kind of think about it is there's, uh, there's restrictions for sort of the, the smaller large gatherings and the larger large gatherings. So for the smaller large gatherings, that's where you're going to see that 250 person limit kick in. It's worth noting that this is, uh, it's either 250 people or 50% of the occupancy of the room, whatever it's you know, normally scheduled to hold. So whichever of those two numbers is lower is, is the amount of people that are allowed to attend. So this applies to venues that have an occupancy of 2,500 or less. Then there's different rules that apply to sort of the largest venues. That would be in Allegiant Stadium, any of our stadiums, large, large venues here in Nevada. 
And they are actually allowed to, they have to apply for special permission to do this. But if they do, they can actually have up to 10% of their capacity. So let's say, you know, a 10,000 person stadium, that means they could have, you know, a thousand people, um, 10% of their capacity. So this really would allow for some larger events to, to continue large. For instance, if there was a sporting event, we've had live sporting events, but without audiences. So this would allow audiences to attend. You could have other types of shows. Now it's worth noting that there are very specific restrictions that venues are going to have to abide by if they want to apply for this 10% capacity. Um, For instance, they have to divide that capacity into sections such that each section only has 250 people. So say it's that thousand person limit they would have to have, you know, uh, at least four different sections of up to 250 people. Those sections have to have their own entrances and exits. They're supposed to have their own restrooms and concession stands to the extent of, uh, that's practical to do. But really, the, the goal is to kind of have these little mini 250-person groups within a larger gathering space if, if, the, if the venue, again, applies to um, be able to hold that kind of an event. Okay. And we also heard that we're kind of expecting some more announcements from the governor, potentially today. Yeah. So we're waiting to hear um, exactly what's, what's going to happen. But the governor during his press conference earlier this week said that, you know, some announcements are uh, forthcoming. For instance, he noted that he wasn't um, announcing that youth sports or adult recreational sports could continue. We're expecting an announcement to come on that sometime. But uh, when he made that announcement earlier this week, he said, you know, expect you know, expect more press conferences with some additional details in, in the coming days. So really that gathering was sort of the first big announcement that we got, but we are expecting to hear more details from the governor soon. Well, Megan, thank you so much, as always, for breaking down the numbers and kind of giving us an update on what's going on with the coronavirus. If you want to read Megan's weekly coronavirus contextualized, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be here. Of all of the coronavirus closures mandated by Governor Steve Sisolak, perhaps none generated more controversy over the summer and into the fall as the continued closure put in place for houses of worship, churches, synagogues, mosques, and the like. After months of those extended restrictions, the governor finally took the step this week of easing those limits. So what happens now? Nevada Independent reporter Jacob Solis has the story. In the past few weeks, I convened a group of state officials who have expertise to review our standard statewide operating guidelines, compile options for adjusting some restrictions on our public life. At the same time, we continue to watch numbers for signs of progress and whether the current mitigation measures that are in place are having an impact. I'm pleased to say the answer is yes, they are. That's Governor Steve Sisolak announcing this week that Nevada was back on track and that he would raise a limit on large gatherings from 50 to 250 people and allow some of the state's largest venues to host even more than that. It means the largest churches, synagogues, and other houses of worship in the state would be allowed to hold limited in-person services for the first time since March. As the state has slowly adjusted course since restrictions on non-essential businesses went into effect, churches, as well as other mid-size or large gathering spaces like showrooms, theaters, and convention spaces, were among the last establishments to see those eased restrictions. 
The governor and members of his COVID management team have stressed since February that the restrictions were a necessary tool in reining in the spread of the virus. Early science on the virus backed up those concerns, especially after a church choir practice in Washington state became one of the country's first superspreader events. But critics of the prolonged shutdown have accused the governor of prioritizing casinos and other businesses on the Las Vegas Strip over religious freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution. Pointing to packed casinos over the summer and, at the time, no requirement for masks, these critics cast the move as more of an economic consideration than one of public health. It appears to me that the governor really still hasn't come to terms with the real limit on his power you know, relative to the churches. And it doesn't mean that his intentions are bad. I think he genuinely intends to try to prevent the spread of disease. Um, But there's another way to go about it rather than through directive. That's Jason Guinasso, a Reno lawyer and pastor who headed a lawsuit on the issue that's made it to the Nevada Supreme Court. He and others have argued that the governor's directive doesn't square with religious freedom protections under the First Amendment, and also that his actions have come without the consultation of the state's local religious leaders. That's where I think the governor made his biggest mistake was not trusting us, you know, to do the right thing by our people. And notwithstanding the fact that they're going to be bad actors in any group, you know, the, you know, when he gave a lot of latitude to the casinos, there were some casinos that did really good work in complying and other casinos that didn't. And I, I just thought he should have given us the same kind of deference that he did casinos. And, and unfortunately, he didn't take that approach. So. But the issue of church restrictions wasn't always so contentious. In March, when the shutdowns revved from zero to 100 in a matter of days, so little was known about the scope or severity of the pandemic in the U.S. that many, though not all of the businesses and institutions deemed non-essential, gamely shut their doors in hopes of flattening the curve. That includes many of the state's churches. Brent Brooks is a senior pastor at Reno Christian Fellowship. His church routinely saw attendance numbers around 700, and he says services went from being live and in-person to completely online in just two days. Originally, you know, COVID was this new thing everybody had no idea about. It was, it was kind of scary. Uh, the governor, he tended to make announcements on Friday that we were supposed to adjust to by Sunday. Uh, but at the time, uh, we were actually one of the first churches to shut down. We felt like it was the safest thing to do and the best to do. But goodwill turned into frustration after only about two months. That's when the state began to reopen in early June. In particular, a number of faith leaders across the state chafed at the decision to allow casinos to open while their doors were kept closed. And even after the governor loosened restrictions on gatherings from 10 people to 50 people, some ministers bristled at full casino floors just across the street. Cesar Minera is a minister at Ministerio Palabra de Vida, a mid-sized majority Latino church in Reno. I would leave church, let's say at 7.30 after our 6 p.m. service, having 50 people inside of the church, yet both parking lots for the pepper mill, because we're a block from the pepper mill, uh, they will be full to capacity, which would mean thousands upon thousands of people. In press conferences, the governor urged faith leaders, especially at the largest churches that couldn't abide by gathering restrictions like smaller churches could, to find new solutions, like holding sermons over Zoom calls or directing their energy online. 
but a number of faith leaders complained that technological solutions could not replace an in-person service, and some leaders have been growing increasingly worried that the shutdown, even while it's expanded the reach of some of these churches, may have also caused long-term damage to the communities served by these institutions. The thing where I think there's going to be a residual effect is right to the point that you made is that the the relational aspect of our communities and making sure people are cared for and 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 uh, looked after. Well, it's had an effect and it continues to have an effect. For now, the directive will affect mostly these largest churches, which will still be unable to allow congregations at pre-pandemic levels. But, Brooks says, at least houses of worship are no longer subject to what he saw as unfair enforcement of state restrictions. Still, while the governor's move marks the latest step toward fully reopening the state's economy, the health threat from the coronavirus remains a concern. While the state's positivity rate has remained relatively stable over the past several weeks, and the number of deaths and hospitalizations due to the virus have trended downward, those trend lines vary from county to county. In Washoe County, for instance, a record high case total this week. Those numbers have led Washoe County Health Officer Kevin Dick to strongly advise against loosening gathering restrictions in line with the governor's newest directive. For the Nevada Independent, I'm Jacob Solis. Special thanks to Michelle Rendells for her help reporting this story. If you want to hear more of our reporting on the state's ongoing response to the coronavirus, you can find it all on the NevadaIndependent.com. We're here today with Tanil Pereira. She is the director of the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center, which has been in the area since shortly after the Route 91 harvest shooting on October 1st, 2017, and has been and continues to be a community resource for for folks affected by the tragedy. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast, Tanil. Yeah, absolutely. I think Luce has a question basically to to start us out here. Yes. So how do how do the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center's operations look different now that we are three years out from the tragedy? Have they changed because we are in a pandemic? They have. So that's kind of a twofold question. So they've changed based on the needs changing of the survivors. So, and that kind of runs a gambit based on where they are in their healing process, which was in large part dependent upon what, where they were in their life before the shooting happened, right? So the types of resources, coping skills, support system they had built into their own life, or if they had experienced previous trauma, that also kind of compounded the situation. So we see people contacting us today that have never reached out before. And so it's kind of starting, uh, you know, somewhat at the beginning, whereas others are further along in their healing journey. And they're now providing kind of peer support services and assistance to the other survivors. So it kind of runs, you know, a wide gambit in there. The second question on COVID and how our services have changed with COVID, you know, we now have a group of traumatized survivors that 
We're dealing with the underlying issues um, of trauma and the impacts that can have in their personal life. And then we threw COVID in there, right? I don't know how you guys are feeling, but I know there's kind of a general sense of heightened anxiety and a whole you know, slew of financial issues that are going on out there. And then we've had the riots and we've had all of these, you know, fires and online school, all these different things happening. So you had traumatized uh, survivors that had a heightened sense of anxiety to start with. And then you add these things into their life. And then that anxiety level just goes to a whole new level, which can have, you know, ramifications throughout your life financial relationships, you know, employment, everything. So it's all kind of interconnected. COVID just added one more thing kind of on the pile. In response, the Resiliency Center has really worked hard to stay engaged with community resources. What resources are coming about because of COVID? How can we tap into them? what developments on the legal front. So like the eviction moratorium or, you know, you know, mortgages not being foreclosed on and what, what mortgages would that apply to? And, you know, all these different things, we've really tried to educate ourselves, you know, minute by minute and just stay abreast, provide those resources and information to our survivors, and then be prepared to kind of educate them and help them navigate things so that we can, you know, keep them on a healing path. I'm sure it's a little bit hard to generalize because there were so many people affected and, and everybody experiences it differently. But kind of generally, I mean, how, how important is, is it for you guys to mark the anniversary and to have the events like the, the virtual 5K and the reading of the names? You know, here, here we are on the third anniversary. Right. It's really important. You know, anniversaries are a really important stage in healing. It gives you the chance to memorialize, commemorate, honor, and look back. One of the most healing aspects of the anniversary is to look at how far you've come. Look at where we were and look how far we are, right? Because sometimes those daily increases or daily, you know, improvements, we don't necessarily notice because they're they're so minute, right? It's like a staircase, one stair at a time. But when you get to the top and you look down at 365 stairs, wow, we've really come far. So it's just that sense of, yeah, we are healing and it just gives hope. And I think it's important too that the community generally marks these days and commemorates them because it tells those that are struggling, that have been through this horrific event, look, we do remember we haven't forgotten, right? Because if that isn't done, they can feel forgotten and left in the past or feel like there's something wrong with them because, you know, for lack of a better term, they aren't over it, you know? Because a lot of people look at this and they say, whoa, gosh, it's, it's been three years. What's, what's taking so long? And really three years, when you look at how traumatic this event was, is not long at all. So it just normalizes it and says, we're here with you. Our understanding is that the healing garden is continually evolving as a memorial to the victim. 
how has that evolved over the past three years? So the Healing Garden is such a unique project. I don't, I'm not aware of any other type of project like this in any other community that's had a mass violence incident like this. It really came out of the goodwill of the community just coming together and saying, we have to do something. We need something. We need somewhere to go. We've, you know, at Vegas had this outpouring in their community of just people wanting to do something. And that's where the healing garden came from was just this group of volunteers that came together and created this beautiful, amazing garden, but it's a living, breathing garden. So, you know, more plants have been added. People leave, you know, little mementos there. And then as time has gone on, we've kind of seen, well, those mementos are kind of deteriorating and they're blowing away or, you know, you know, we might have, some people doing things there that we wouldn't, you know, doesn't really honor the spirit of the garden. So how can we deal with that? So different construction projects have, have happened, improvements to the garden, and now they've actually expanded the garden, whereas before it was, it was open, and now they've added an additional lot onto it and expanded it. But they've also now are adding fencing just to protect it, you know, and it was kind of uh, conflicted, conflicted viewpoints on whether or not to add the fencing because we have a group of people that were at this horrific event and couldn't get out of a space, right? Because of fencing. And so we weren't sure, you know, how that would be taken, but then they, they kind of settled on, you know, kind of a balance. They've created this beautiful fencing. It's uh, with like music notes and and it will be really beautiful, but it will preserve and protect this garden for the survivors and for the you know families of the bereaved and the community. Immediately after this happened, we saw the blood drives and we saw you know an outpouring of of donations and and the federal government stepped in to provide assistance. I think has that kept up and are, are the needs of survivors that are you know three years out from this tragedy are they. Are they still being met? They are still being met. So the federal funding that you're talking about was the AEAP grant, which we're still operating under. So the center is actually funded through that grant program. It is a three-year program. However, it took some time for the grant process to be done. And so we still have some time on that grant. So that is still there. I think generally people still want to help. They don't always necessarily know know, how to get involved or what's still going on with the project, but there are still ways, you know, to reach out and help. We do have a, an emergency financial assistance program through the resiliency center that kind of provides just small dollar amount assistance for people that call in. You know, we know a lot of times the underlying issue is connecting with mental health services, but when they say, well, you know what, I'll deal with that tomorrow, but today I got to pay my electric bill. So, you know, and, and if we don't have some way to kind of plug those really small, you know, holes to get them uh, the healing resources, it doesn't, you know, really help. So we do still have that program going on. People can donate to that program. It's wholly funded by donations. The grant does not fund that. The Vegas Strong Plates that are in Nevada, those are also the donations that come from there, that's what also um, helps fund that program. So there's still ways to get involved. And I think generally people still really want to be supportive and want to help. Um, They just aren't always sure how to do that. And if someone, I mean, what are some of the basic services that people will find if they contact you guys? 
And who, who really is eligible for those? So we, anyone impacted by One October can call in to us and we will um, see what benefits or resources they do qualify for. And we will work hard to connect them with whatever it is that they need in their healing journey, right? Because, you know, just because someone wasn't at the venue that night doesn't mean they weren't impacted because we, you know, we recognize the needs of the community as well as far as healing because the entire community was impacted. But for the most part, the, the mental health resources and the things that are funded or paid for are available to the victims and to the bereaved families. Do you have any just general advice for the folks that are, yeah, part of the community? Like you're saying, the community as a whole was really affected by this. Any general tips that you're offering folks that are still dealing with the, the pain of that incident? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, you know, kind of reflect, look at where you are. How is this impacting you? Do you need some resources or do you need to just talk to someone? And then the other side of this is helping you know, us helping our community heal or helping those in the community heal. If you know someone that's been impacted by this or was there or has lost someone or even has a family member or something that was there, it impacts, you know, that entire family unit and the friends surrounding them. So reach out to them, check in on them, let them know that you remember this day, that it was important to you. Just acknowledging that is huge in healing. Great. I think that should be it. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and walking us through what you guys are, are up to. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for helping us get the word out. Welcome to our Facebook Live. This is a weekly tradition that we have recently started with uh, indie team members talking about the stories that they've been working on and their areas of expertise. So we're here today with Jackie Valley. Jackie is our education reporter, but also does a variety of other things, including gaming and real estate. Jackie, for those of you, for those of our viewers that haven't met you yet, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into journalism. Sure. Thanks, Michelle. I'm happy to be here today. It's nice to see you virtually since we're separated by about seven hours. Yeah. So I, I guess for a long time, I've had an interest in education reporting. And I think our editor, John Ralston, would agree that when I first met him for coffee about this job, I told him I wasn't really interested in politics, which was probably a bold statement since that's what he was launching at the time, but that I wanted to do education. And I think it appealed to me for a variety of reasons, but first of all, it's sort of what I grew up with around the, the dinner table conversation. My mom is a uh, special education middle school teacher in Ohio, and she actually went back and did that later in life. So she went the route of becoming a teacher aide and then got her licensure. Um, and then I have a twin sister, and she also went into education. And so we did go to the same college. And so we kind of intermingled with education friends and then the journalism friends. And so I have lots of friends and family members, including two aunts who are also teachers. So it's something that we talk about. I mean, I talk to my twin sister on the phone pretty much every day and ask her how her day went. She is in a hybrid model in Ohio also. So she's going part-time or no, she's going full-time, but the kids are going part-time. 
Okay, great. Jackie, wanted to talk to you about, I mean, you followed this thing from the beginning. I think you were at the press conference when the big announcement came way back, like March. Yeah, I think we worked on that story together, actually. We did, actually. That was a weird day because there were two Sunday and I think there were two press conferences separated by about three hours. Yeah, it was the sky was falling that day. That day was crazy. Yeah, that was unprecedented in itself because we, you know, there are not snow days here typically, and at least in Southern Nevada. So the idea of school closing for any length of time was, you know, a new concept for pretty much everyone, but much less for a pandemic. I think everyone had been kind of waiting on pins and needles for that decision at that point, and the unknowns and the fears of the virus were very rampant back in mid March. And then it was like, even up to July and August, right? This was such a contentious thing in both ends of the state as district, as boards of trustees were really trying to balance so many competing voices and decide whether they were going to go distance or hybrid or full-time in person. So what was that like in, in the Clark County meetings that you were watching? It honestly was a very tortured process. And I don't think it was anyone's fault in particular. Again, Everyone wanted to do the best by kids and the families and teachers and so on and so forth. And meanwhile, the state had reopened, the casinos had reopened, things were looking good in late May, early June. And then right about the time that we were coming up to a decision point for schools, the cases started skyrocketing again. And so that really changed the dynamic. Now you'll have lots of people say, and maybe rightfully so, that, well, we should have had multiple plans like and been planning for full distance learning back in June. But I think there was like a strong hope, obviously, that we'd return to some sense of normal with the school year. So it was a lot of long meetings, a lot of late nights. And there were so many things to work through. I mean, I remember vividly some of the presentations showing school buses and how many kids could theoretically be safely packed into a school bus. And packed is probably the wrong word because they were sitting, you know, at one per seat on a school bus. So there were just a nightmare of logistics to figure out. And, you know, ultimately, I think we were watching the cases. We were also watching what was happening across the country, LA Unified School District, which is, I want to say the third largest in the country or the second largest, went full virtual. And so by that point, I think we we're all kind of thinking, okay, the dominoes will fall pretty quickly for Clark County. And that's what happened. And then for Washoe County, that didn't happen though. They decided against the advice of their county health officer to go to in-person, full-time for elementary, and then a hybrid model for middle and high school. So that one was a little surprising in itself, although, you know, Reno's a much smaller city by comparison, and they overall had been trending a little bit lower in terms of COVID cases. And the thing that we're hearing now, I mean, yesterday was Syslac's big announcement. Again, you were there for that. We're, we're raising the level of gatherings from 50 to 250 plus, you know, it, it feels like things are, are rapidly sort of changing. And, and you tweeted out the statement from the Clark County School, School Board. So we're considering potentially a new whether what we need to be doing with schools. Yeah, well, the governor received that question during the press conference yesterday, and he basically said that it's a local decision, so he wasn't going to mandate anything one way or another. Um, And then it was a short time later that Clark County District put out a a statement basically saying that they're analyzing the data, you know, they're looking into it. But when the trustees made that decision in July, they they made that decision for the first 90 days of the school year. Um, I think there was some confusion around that initially, because when the school board had a meeting and a 
COVID update last Thursday. And there was a lot of buzz, I think, beforehand about, oh, are we going to make a return? Well, no, they were just going to get an update and see where things are. But there's not like a decision point uh, being made quite yet. The, the superintendent, Dr. Jara, has hinted at January being a more realistic return to in-person. I've been told that the next board meeting on October 8th will focus more heavily on a transition plan, though. That was part of a longer interview between Michelle Rendells and Jackie Valley talking about distance learning and education in the state right now. If you want to hear the full interview, you can find it on our Facebook page where we have weekly chats and live streams about various topics regarding the news of the week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Tanil Pereira, Michelle Rendells, Luce Gray, Megan Messerly, and Jackie Valley for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email me at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast, you can email editors at thenvindy.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies, and you can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Additional music on this week's episode comes from Lance Conrad and Storyblocks. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.